0: Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash FQC. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
1: Right, ladies and gentlemen, both in person and online, welcome to this afternoon's symposium. Our symposium today is entitled Treatment Approaches in egfr mutant Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer post tyrosine Kinase Inhibitor and Chemotherapy. What now and what next? Because this session is being recorded, I would like to request that all audience turn their phone to the silent mode, please. Um, I'm Dr. Wong Seng Wing. I'm a medical oncologist with the Singapore Medical Group. I'm also an adjunct clinician scientist with the Agency for Science, Technology, and Research in Singapore. Today, we have with us two heavyweight speakers. These are opinion leaders of opinion leaders. Dr. Pasi Yanni, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Director, Low Center for Thoracic Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Boston. We also have with us Dr. Solange Peters, Professor of Oncology, University of Lausanne, Director of Medical Oncology, Lausanne University Hospital, Switzerland. I will take a few minutes to just sketch out the current treatment landscape. What do we usually do in EGFR mutant after they progress on TKI? Thereafter, I'll bring on Dr. Yane, who is going to show us more novel approaches to this problem, focusing on some of the latest antibody drug conjugates that are coming to maturity, that will enter clinical practice, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Following that, I will call on Dr. Peters to show us how to integrate all these new novel approaches and strategies into our treatment algorithm. And she will also show us where the synergy lies and help us to peer beyond the horizon to see what is coming next. Lung cancer is a very deadly disease worldwide. The five-year survival is around about 10%. And for advanced non-small cell lung cancer, the median survival is around about 20 months. It is true that immunotherapy and targeted therapy has improved results, but I don't think anyone in the audience will argue against my point that we need new options. And not every patient will have a targetable mutation. The odds of finding a mutation, a driver mutation, depends on the population that we are looking at. So, in the East Asian population, there's an 80% probability of finding a driver mutation. 20% of patients are without a driver mutation. In a Western population, the proportion of patients with no driver mutation doubles to 40%. The main difference is in the frequency of the EGFR mutation, which is a lot more common in East Asians. In the K, for the KRAS mutation... Is more common in the western population, and for the rest of the mutation, it's about equal between the two. What do we do after an EGFR mutant progress on TKI? Well, it depends on whether it's first, second generation or third generation. If it is a first or second generation TKI, then the resistant mechanism is fairly neat. It's dominated by the T790M, which is found in about 50% of the cases that progress, and it benefit from a third-generation TKI like osimertinib. However, as we all know, third-generation TKI osimertinib oz- has already moved into the first-line setting since the floral trial's results were made known. So, osimertinib over a first-generation TKI shows a progression-free survival benefit as well as an overall survival benefit. However, If the patient progresses on a third-generation TKI, then the situation is a lot more complicated because the resistant mechanism is a mixed bag. It's very messy. Around about 60% of patients will have no resistant mechanism found. And among those who have, about 20% will be acquired EGFR mutation and about 20% will be met amplification. Even among acquired EGFR mutation, you notice that it's another mixed bag. There are different mutations occurring at different frequencies. The most frequent acquired mutation is a C797X. Right, you might have heard that the C797X can sometimes be inhibited by a non-irreversible EGFR TKI like a first-gen TKI. But that's only true if it occurs in the transposition, When the T797X occurs concurrently with the T790M, it's almost invariably in the cis position, and therefore this strategy doesn't work. So what does ASMO recommend in the situation where the patient progresses? ASMO suggests that we do a next-generation sequencing to assess for resistant mechanism. If the patient progresses on the third-generation TKI like osimertinib, then, and a driver mutation is found, that the resistant mutation is found, then the clinician is encouraged to enroll the patient in a clinical trial. If there is no resistant mechanism, then we fall back to the platinum doublet, possibly with the addition of a tesalizumab and bevazizumab. However, if the patient progresses on a first or second generation TKI, we should first assess for the presence of a T790M, which will benefit from a 3rd generation TKI-like osimertinib before we move on to chemotherapy. The basis for ESMO suggesting that a platinum doublet with a atezolizumab and bevacizumab should be a consideration is based on the IMPower 150 trial. In this trial, the experimental arm of a platinum doublet with a atezolizumab and bevacizumab has been shown to be superior to the control arm of a platinum doublet with bevacizumab alone. And in the subgroup analysis, we see an interesting finding. We notice that patients with an EGFR mutation, they appear to benefit from this strategy. Their hazard ratio is about 0.6, not different from the overall population, and for those with a deletion-19 and L858R mutation, the hazard ratio is 0.41, so they appear to benefit from it. It is not entirely true that patients with a driver mutation in EGFR or ALK will not benefit from immunotherapy. In combination with an anti approach, we might still be able to bring additional benefit to this group of patients. And however, beyond that, now the other strategies to overcome resistance falls into a three basket. We may target the on-target resistance, in other words, acquired EGFR mutation. This can be done through a fourth-generation EGFR TKI or anti-EGFR monoclonal antibody like amivantamab. Or we may target the bypass resistance. For instance, 20% of the patient may have MET amplification. We can target this by combining an anti-EGFR TKI together with a MET TKI or use a bivalent monoclonal antibody against EGFR as well as MET. The third strategy is to use this new class of drugs, antibody-drug conjugate. Interestingly, this is mechanism agnostic. Although these antibodies all go after individual targets of the tumor cells, But because these targets are commonly expressed in non-small cell lung cancer, and the modern ADCs have a very high uh, drug-to-antibody ratio, in other words, they have a very, very high payload, they only require a very small amount of target to deliver a devastating effect against the cancer. This is a very busy slide. It's just to let the audience know that countless clinical trials are ongoing evaluating the strategies that I've just outlined. A quick word about uh, the antibody drug conjugate, essentially it's an antibody that recognizes a particular antigen on the tumor cells. There is a cytotoxic payload that is joined to the antibody using a linker molecule. So the antibody will bind to the target antigen and the antibody will be internalized into the tumor cells. Thereafter, the linker is cleaved and the cytotoxic payload is released. And because of the high cytotoxic payload, there may be a bystander effect. In other words, even cells that have not internalized the antibody might be destroyed in the process. And you will hear a lot more about these targets that are being studied for the ADCs, HER2, HER3, TROP2, 5 and CMET. The next two speakers will bring us up to speed on all these new advances. So in summary, the EGFR mutation is the commonest mutation in advanced non-small-cell lung cancer. The post-progression, if it is after a first or second generation TKI, it is dominated by T790M and is fairly neat and easy to target a resistant mechanism. If it's progression post-third generation TKI, the resistant mechanism is a mixed bag, making crafting a strategy to overcome it difficult we need to all recognize that current strategy using platinum doublet chemotherapy with or without atezolizumab, bevacizumab represents a very limited option. Future strategies may target the on-target resistance, the bypass resistance, or it might be resistant mechanism agnostic. Looking forward, the antibody drug conjugates are likely to play a very important role in this space. With that, I'd like to bring on our first star speaker, Dr. Pasi Yane, who will bring us up to speed on the latest ADCs. Pasi, the floor is all yours.
0: Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Wang, and uh, welcome everybody. And uh, we'll uh, uh, d- dive deeper into future approaches in the treatment of egfr mutant non-small cell lung cancer, post-TKI, and chemotherapy. And I'll start out by uh, looking at uh, uh, trope two. So, you saw this slide earlier from Dr. Wang. So there are several uh, antibody drug conjugates that are being evaluated in lung cancer in various stages of clinical development. And uh, trope two there is in the middle. And trope 2 is a transmembrane glycoprotein highly expressed in non-small cell lung cancers and other uh, solid tumors. It has a on the top right, you can see the prognostic significance, and so in patients that express high levels of with adenocarcinoma of trope 2 tend to have an overall poor prognosis. And you can see on the bottom right the intensity staining uh, for uh, uh, trope 2. So there are two trope 2 antibody drug conjugates uh, for which uh, <coughs> data exists. Uh, this one uh potumab diroxtacan or data dxt and sazituzimab govitican and they are both trope 2 antibodies with a linker and then conjugated to uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy and in this case both uh topoisomerase uh, uh uh inhibitors. Um and as I mentioned, clinical data exists for both. This is data from the tropian pan-tumor uh, phase one uh, multi-center uh, clinical trial that evaluated DATO-DXD in patients with advanced non cell lung cancer and, inclu- and looked at other tumor types as well. This is the data, uh, the response rates uh, shown uh, on the waterfall plot and in the uh, chart um, and uh, anti-tumor activity was observed at all the doses at 4, 6, and 8 milligrams per kilogram. And most responses were durable over time, including a median duration of response of about 10.5 months in the 6.6 milligram per kilogram cohort. Now, this was in all comers with lung cancer. Patients had previously been treated uh, with systemic therapies if we now focus on the patients with actionable genomic alterations, <clears throat> you can see about a, which is a subset of the, of the patients in that uh, um, prior graph, about a 35% response rate. Most of these patients have EGFR immune lung cancer, as you can see from the graph uh, on the right-hand side. And um, you can see that there are responses across uh, different uh, cancers and molecular genotypes, so in patients with and without EGFR-T790M-mediated uh, uh, resistance, This is this, uh, uh, as you see on the right-hand side. And this uh, has um, led to the development of, of Tropion LungO5 trial an ongoing phase two study of datto dxt in patients with actionable genomic alterations, and hopefully we'll uh, see the data of this uh, uh, trial uh, uh, later on this year or next year. Now, if you look at correlation of trope 2 expression, So what the antibody is binding to, to the efficacy, uh, in fact, there isn't a clear efficacy. And you can see that uh, given in two two different ways. So there's the uh, membrane expression on the left-hand side and the color-coded bars are the responses. And then on the right-hand side, this box plot of the uh, H-score by response. And you can see that the H-scores overlap uh, in patients that have complete responses, partial responses, stable disease, and even progressive disease. So this doesn't clearly discriminate, at least this way of scoring it, uh, who is going to respond or who's not. This is the uh, the trial of Sazetuzumab uh, uh, govotecan that looked at uh, patients with uh, lung cancer. This is the patients with non-small cell lung cancer with a response rate of 17%. PFS of 5.2 months, and a duration of response of 6 months. Now, there isn't a subset analysis of patients in this trial with genomic alterations, unlike in the DATO-DXT trial, but just to show that the agent is efficacious, has clinical activity uh, in patients who have been treated with prior uh, systemic uh, uh, platinum-based chemotherapy. If we look at AEs between the two agents, there are some similarities. Uh, you see nausea, diarrhea, fatigue, uh, neutropenia, things that we associate typically with chemotherapy-type uh, side effects. And you can also see uh, um, oral mucositis as a side effect, which is a known side effect of uh, trope uh, uh, 2 uh, ADCs, and you can see it with both uh, agents. Now, what about subsequent clinical development? Uh, there, is a, uh, a lar- uh, there are two randomized clinical trials ongoing, the tropian Lung O1 trial, randomizing patients to DATO-DXT versus docetaxel with the primary endpoint of P- PFS. And hopefully we'll uh, see this data emerge some point uh, this year. There's been a press release saying that the trial is positive for PFS, but we haven't seen the data yet. And again, hopefully later on this year. And also the evoke one trial, a similar idea of, comparing sazituzumab govitecan to dostaxel um, uh, in a randomized uh, phase 3 clinical trial. Here, the primary endpoint is OS, and secondary endpoints are PFS and, and response and durability of response. Now, let's move on to HER3. Now, HER3 is a member of the erb uh, superfamily, and most EGFR immune cancers actually co-express HER3. HER3 is not a known resistance mechanism to EGFR inhibitors, unlike HER2, where HER2 amplification is, can, has been described as a resistance mechanism to all generation of EGFR inhibitors, including uh, osimertinib. HER3 is uh, biologically EGFR uses HER3 to activate PI3 kinase uh, signaling. Now, uh, if we look at uh, HER3, there's th- th- this is an example of some patient-derived xenografts where HER3 is expressed. And here, uh, pa- these xenografts are treated with Patritumab Deruxtecan, a HER3 antibody drug conjugate, or IgG control. And you can see in all cases, uh, the, the, the xenografts in this preclinical model are quite uh, sensitive. And <clears throat> this is the schema for the phase one clinical trial of Patritumab Deruxtecan. Uh, an EGFR, uh, inhibitor-resistant EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Um, This included, uh, the initial analysis included patients in the dose escalation and expansion, which is the 5.6 milligram milligram per kilogram dose, and collectively included 57 patients between the escalation and expansion. And in the first cohort in patients with EGFR mutation mutant non-small cell lung cancer Patients who received prior EGFR TKI and platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, these are the characteristics of the patients. They were heavily pretreated. Majority have received prior chemotherapy and EGFR TKIs, of course. And this is the clinical activity. So in patients that had prior TKI plus or minus platinum-based chemotherapy, the response rate was 39%. And in patients that had prior osomer and platinum-based chemotherapy, the response rate was also 39%. And in both uh, cohorts or, 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 or in both groupings, the PFS is 8.2 months. Here's the waterfall plot. And similarly, in the bottom, as I showed you with the trope 2, we see the activating EGFR mutation as well as the resistance mechanism and/or mechanisms, because many of them have multiple mechanisms. And you can see that there's responses in, in patients whose cancers have known resistance mechanisms, such as C797S or amplifications of other oncogenes or acquired fusion oncogenes, and in patients whose tumors uh, uh, have no detectable resistance mechanisms. So it's sort of independent or agnostic to the. Uh, whether or not there's a resistance mechanism present in the tumor. If you look at, again, the uh, correlation with HER3 expression and efficacy, you can see responses on the left-hand side in patients regardless of the degree of HER3 expression. And on the right-hand side, again, if you sort of summarize the uh, uh, mean HER3 expression in patients who had CRs or PRs, stable disease, uh, progressive disease are not evaluable, you can see that the box plots, uh, the 95% confidence intervals, uh, clearly um, uh, cross each other, and hence there isn't a clear uh, uh, delineation or cutoff for HER3 expression that correlates with efficacy, similar to what we saw with the data from uh, DATO-DXD. In terms of uh, AE profiles, um, also uh, hematologic toxicities and nausea um, uh, um, uh, has been seen here as well as uh, occasional uh, ILD as has been seen with uh, many uh, ADCs. There are a few ongoing trials with uh, the uh, her, uh, with patritumab durexacan. This is the Herthena uh, lung 01 trial uh, comparing the 5.6 milligram. This is the phase two trial, but randomizing patients to the 5.6 milligram per kilogram dose or a strategy to up titrate to the 5.6 milligram per kilogram dose. Uh, and uh, um, uh, Dr. Yu is presenting this trial here at, uh, at, uh, in, in Singapore during this uh, meeting, so be on the lookout for those uh, results. There's also a randomized phase 3 trial ongoing for patients who have progressed on frontline TKI therapy but who have not had prior chemotherapy, randomized to HER3-DXD at 5.6 milligrams per kilogram or to platinum-based chemotherapy uh, with the uh, primary endpoint here in this trial being PFS. And this trial is currently ongoing and enrolling uh, patients. There are also approaches to combine uh, HER3-ADC with uh, osimertinib in this case. And uh, preclinical studies demonstrate that EGFR inhibition, including with uh, osimertinib, actually leads to an enhancement, an increase in the membrane-bound HER3, and that subsequently uh, leads to an increase in internalization of the HER3 ADC. So EGFR inhibition, uh, in addition to uh, uh, being effective in an EGFR uh, uh, mutant tumor, can also enhance potentially the efficacy of a HER3 uh, ADC through this enhanced expression and internalization of the ADC. And this has led to a, a phase 1-2 clinical trial, the phase 1 portion shown in the middle, evaluating uh, whether full doses of osimertinib or, and, uh, the, and, and uh, uh, what dose of HER3-ADC can be safely administered together, and then uh, moving this combination into the second line setting uh, for patients who have been previously treated with osimertinib, and also there's a cohort evaluating this combination as a first-line uh, 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 treatment strategy as well. Now, uh, the, there was a second cohort in the original phase one trial that looked at patients whose tumors had, didn't have EGFR genetic alterations and many of those had other genetic alterations. And you can see here that there are clinical responses in patients, for example, with ALK rearranged lung cancer on the, on the far right, with KRAS mutant tumors, et cetera. So targeting HER3 may not be, its efficacy may not be limited to EGFR small cell lung cancer, and we need to explore this uh, avenue a little bit more uh, uh, clinically to see if it could also work as a therapeutic strategy for patients with other driver genomic alterations who have been effectively treated or previously treated with uh, uh, genotype-directed therapies. So just to conclude, HER3 and TROP2 ADCs have clinical activity in patients with EGFR immune lung cancer after EGFR TKIs and chemotherapy. There are several clinical trials that are ongoing, including combinations with osimertinib. There does not appear today to be a clear correlation with HER3 or TROP2 expression and ADC efficacy. And I think we, as a field, need to identify additional biomarkers to identify those individuals that are most likely to benefit from this uh, uh, therapeutic uh, uh, strategy. I I would like to now uh, uh, call to the stage uh, uh, Dr. Solange Peters to talk about uh, what we can do today versus tomorrow and where the future is going.
2: Thanks so much, Passy. So following on uh, the, um, I would say, very um, uh, overwhelming descriptive landscape of the opportunities in terms of antibody drug conjugate, I will try to address some potential further advances and also some bottlenecks and some limitations we had to uh, meet by uh, having these developments in hands and potentially open questions in the field. Where do we think that uh, this antibody drug conjugates that Passiani has described could potentially enter this? I have put the slides on the ESMO guidelines. I could have taken the NCCN2. Where do we think they might position or be positioned in our uh, strategy? So first of all, and the most obvious is to replace second line strategy excel? But of course, once you develop a strategy, you'd like to move it frontline. So it could also be developed in unselected patients frontline in combination with everything we have, meaning platinum and immunotherapy. But you could also imagine that platinum is useless and develop it frontline only with IO. All of these are being studied. And of course, what would be very attractive is in the high PDL1 setting, not to have any platinum, but to develop it in combination with IO. If we focus on EGFR mutated non cell lung cancer, the paradigm is more or less the same. So first, you should imagine to use it in combination with platinum as the first chemotherapy once you have failed targeted therapy, or even as monotherapy when the targeted therapies have failed. Of course, you can uh, imagine to develop it in the context of specific mechanism of resistance. Think about metamplification. We have antibody drug conjugates. So that would be very refined. And you could also imagine to use it to replace docetaxel, which is a minimal common denominator to these strategies. All of these are being studied. Uh, how can we improve what we have today in terms of biomarkers and in terms of antibody drug conjugate efficacy in general? So it's quite frustrating because there is a strong need for improvement in biomarkers. The activity of these ADCs, of course, depends on the presence of the target on the cancer cells. However, despite that fact, a biomarker agnostic approach is applied for most or even many ADCs. If you think about HER3, TROP2, B7H3, Nectin 4 ADC, don't use the target as a biomarker. So we need to treatment. We will optimize the treatments once we will have performed an extended assessment on tumor biopsies in order to understand how we can define the biomarkers for these ADC and therefore increase the response rate to these specific ADCs, It's quite, uh, the table shows some examples of the few with biomarkers and some without biomarkers. Uh, Bassi had, uh, has shown you the chop 2 development with the datopotamab taken for example, where there's no biomarker. In HER2, the biomarker, we have the mutation, but it looks like the expression is a weak biomarker. This does not really make sense. And we have also the HER3, the patritumab taken where there is no biomarker about the fact it was developed in resistance in EGFR. So very frustrating. We have, however, in lung cancer, the proofs that biomarker can be used looking at CKM-5 antibody drug conjugate. This is one uh, antibody drug conjugate based on a biomarker. And what I will describe later on, the TELISOV, which is a Cmet antibody drug conjugate, also strongly dependent on a biomarker. So there might be a way to define the biomarker. So why can't we? You need the target, how can you measure the target and define the good target population? So probably it's a limitation of the measure of the target. First of all, the target is dynamic. So maybe we can't measure the target because of the dynamic heterogeneous nature of this target. What is quite important to also understand is maybe the mechanism of ADCs means that a very minimal amount of target might be sufficient, meaning that you cannot measure it. It's also possible that the so-called bystander effect meaning that the effect is abroad and across the tumor would potentially hide or delete the measurability of the target as a biomarker. Of course, you could imagine other primary resistance mechanisms which will completely blur the picture in terms of a biomarker. And last but not least, our pathologists will tell us maybe immunohistochemistry assays are not adequate. For example, not sensitive enough. For example, not truly quantitative. And last but not least, It might be that the epitopes are different between the the one you use to to measure and the one you use to target, which leads to a wrong evaluation. So all of this might explain why we don't get where we want to get, meaning measuring the target. I was thinking first about the dynamic nature and the heterogeneous nature. This doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from these wonderful publications in breast cancer uh, and in lung cancer. Turing first, for example, this is breast cancer and TDM one The level of pathological complete response on the left is strongly correlated to the fact that the amplification of HER2 has to be homogeneous. If it's heterogeneous, you don't reach the pathological complete response. And on the right-hand side, you can even quantify the homogeneity, and the more homogeneous, the more chances you have to have a pathological complete response. So the heterogeneity is an important factor that might affect all our lung cancer samples and patients. The other thing is a dynamic nature. You have a circulation and internalization in the lysosome of the antibody drug conjugate, which is dynamic by nature. And it was nicely shown that in lung cancer, a a HER2 expression is not giving rise to a lot of internalization and rotation of the receptor, but the mutated HER2 is strongly dynamic in and out of the cell. So there might be really a dynamic nature of the biomarker of the target, which might explain why we cannot measure it but then some drugs are effective in a subset of patients. So there are many, many things today that we need to continue to to learn about this antibody drug conjugate and we can improve about them. So first of all, we can improve and we are trying to improve antibodies. Sometimes we use antibodies fragments, bispecific antibodies targeting two anchors in the same time, new targets, for example, mutant protein or microenvironment of the tumor. You can also improve the payloads. Payloads are not only chemotherapy, you could imagine dual payloads, for example, uh, uh, some immune modulator and a chemotherapy, or you can only have immune modulator like TLR8 agonists, which are in development. You could imagine new cytotoxic agents, at the time being, there are only two classes of drug, and you can, of course, also use the radionucleotides, as well as enzymes, small peptides. Uh, and uh, potentially also small molecules to be the payloads of your target. And last but not least, the most refined strategy in terms of engineering today is a linker. There might be a way to provide linkers which give rise to a safe delivery of the drug exactly where we want it to be, meaning in the exact surrounding of the cancer cell. I'd like to give you some ideas also of some innovative ADCs that you have probably never heard about, there are some ADCs playing the game of the checkpoint inhibition, like using, for example, PDL1 as a target. It's a good target because, as you remember, PDL1 is expressed on mol- most cancer types. We all use anti PD1, anti PDL1. It's usually very uh, low expressed, uh, l- expressed to a lower level in uh, uh, all the cells except the antigen presenting cell and the tumor cells. So it's a good target for that. Uh, it's not secreted and it's strongly internalized while the antibody is it. And two, this ADC uh, exist? yeah. There are at least nine in development. They are very nice. Three of them are based on uh, an or the backbone, the one we know. But there are also others with new anti-PD-L1. Anti- and importantly, not only harboring and carrying payloads of chemotherapy, but some have sting agonists, for example, to, have, to try to have a dual immune effect and not a toxic effect at the level of the tumor. So it can be new payloads, and it is a new class of target. These agents have just reached phase one, and we are waiting forwards to see how they do in a phase one trial across many cancer types. Very importantly, too, there's a whole development of what we call conditionally active biologic antibody drug conjugates. So it's not a, it's not about the linker, which allows for the release in the lysosome or in the surrounding of the cancer cell, but it's about the binding. The binding of the antibody is conditional and will only happen under certain biological and biochemistry conditions, meaning in the Warburg effect, in the microenvironment of the tumor, depending on the acidic, for example, conditions uh, which are around the tumor cells. So really, the binding is specific. And here, two in development, the Axel and the ZO1, uh, are very important new ADC in phase one trial. So these are real big rooms for development. Of course, another spot that we have to think about frontline is combination. You can combine with everything, antiangiogenic, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, and we start to see these combinatorial strategies to be assessed, particularly with chemo and with IO. long O2 is uh, an attempt based on what Paciani has presented, the datopotamab, deruxtecan, to try to combine with immunotherapy and platinum or only immunotherapy. What is called here uh, on the table, the doublet or the triplet, the triplet has platinum chemotherapy. So what is quite interesting is this combination looks to be pretty uh, efficient. As you can see, response rate around 40%. What is interesting to look also at the waterfall plot is I'm not so sure that the contribution of the component of the platinum makes a very strong difference. So this is, of course, a signal of a strong efficacy of the combination of the DATO plus immunotherapy. But the question is to know if the combination is strong enough to go frontline and if the platinum is really needed. And this will be tested in a very ambitious program which you can see, the Chopper long 7 the CHOMP-LONG-8, which will both test the combination of DATO plus IO in the LONG-7. The platinum is one of the question in one of the three arms and the LONG-8 in the high pd one doesn't need the platinum. So very ambitious program, as you've seen, based on a small phase two, but really looking forward to move this ADC maybe to the frontline setting. Thinking about EGFR and going back to one ADC which has not been presented, the MET, remember MET is a very strong component of resistance mechanism to EGFR TKI. MET expression or MET as a biomarker is a field of never-ending debate in the community. But here what we speak about is expression of MET. And we try to use it because that's the anchor of the ADC. MET is expressed, is highly expressed in 30% of this uh, non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer, 15 of them having a high expression of MET and 15% having um, an intermediate expression of MET. The limit is easy to do when you speak about the 3-plus cells. And when more than half of the cell are 3-plus, it's high. When less than uh, half of the cell, 25 to 50, are 3-plus, it's intermediate. So really about the expression of the of the target of the anchor in the tissue, okay? So this uh, antibody-drug conjugate is targeting MET, uh, has a uh, uh, microtubulin uh, inhibitor as a payload, and has been used in two circumstances. The obvious one would be EGFR mutated lung small cell lung cancer at resistance. The less obvious, or maybe the less intuitive, would be the EGFR wild type, and as we did not expect the uh, efficacy was mainly seen in the GFR wild type and not in the EGFR mutated setting, where it would have been so rational to use it. So at the time being, it's being developed in intermediate and high MET expression in all comers non-small cell lung cancer and also in second line as compared to docetaxel. However, let's give we should not give up in EGFR mutated. It has been assessed in combination with osimertinib. It's a small phase one trial. With, of course, all the dose levels which are needed for safety purposes. But in this small phase one trial, what I'd like to show is suddenly by combining the two targets met, NEGFR with osimertinib, you reach a response rate which are not 20% anymore, but rather 60 plus percent. So this will be continued in a phase two, and who knows, maybe later on, in a phase three trial as a potential use in the resistance setting. So, ND brain drug conjugates uh, in terms of toxicities are also something we have to learn over time. They uh, probably are better tolerated than the usual chemotherapy, but have very specific spectrum of toxicity. We know that uh, the toxicity can be on target or off target, and we have been seeing for the first time new categories of toxicities, as for example, uh, high toxicity, gastrointestinal, neurological, pulmonary were known, but the off-timing toxicity was a very new one. We have to focus now on management and provide with the community uh, on uh, monitoring, uh, I would say, guidelines and managing guidelines in order to make sure that we will be able to manage the on and the off targets type of toxicity. But importantly, it looks like despite that, this can be combined with IO and this can be combined with chemotherapy. Remember, trastuzumab, deruxtecan give rise to a a high level of ILG, too high to be considered trivial. So what I mean by that is you need to be a very cautious more than with IO if you suspect that ILD could develop in a patient. All patients who have a grade 1, grade 1 is asymptomatic infiltrate. Under trastuzumab, deruxtecan, should be proposed steroids. Answer number one. But all the ones with grades 2 and 3, Two wins, you start to cough, like my patient, or you start to have a little dyspnea in addition to the infiltrate. They ha- Even if it's small symptoms, they have to permanently discontinue. Though there's no steroids in resume, grades 2 is permanent discontinuation. So remember that the algorithm is strictly conservative regarding the ILD mainly related to the Rukstechen category family of drug topo-1 inhibitors, It's very conservative, way more than the immunotherapy algorithm, right? Keep it in mind, because this will guide your practice in the future. So there remain some challenges uh, that we will solve in the next future, I'm sure. So first of all, trying to balance as much as possible with drug engineering the occurrence of on-target and off-target toxicity. We need to also try to understand how hypersensitivity reaction can be managed. Some of these drugs give rise to a significant amount of them. With all antibodies, at some point we'll have data about neutralizing anti-drug antibodies to know if some of them might be unfortunately eliminated early by the uh, lymphoid lymphoid system and potentially give rise to less efficacy, but we have not seen any data today. Uh, We, of course, need to try to see how they could be better delivered in the tumor. We have, at the time being, uh, to know more about combination regimen to know more about biomarker, to understand the resistance mechanism, and probably also to understand how heterogeneous can be batches in terms of the drug binding and the drug-to-antibody ratio. One thing important is mechanism of resistance because imagining the sequence of antibody-drug conjugate, keeping the same target, keeping the same payload, changing the target, changing the payload, changing both, is completely depending on the mechanism of resistance happening. So you need to understand to be able to sequence them. So all in all, the conclusion is in the continuum of care, and here we are in EGFR resistance, right? Each new antibody drug conjugate might represent a potential next line of treatment. So how are you going to sequence them? And what are the resistance mechanisms helping you to guide the right sequence? But all of them are an opportunity for a new line of treatment. AD- ADC might be used in the future in the first-line setting, also in GFR, it has to be combined with chemotherapy, combined with IO, or combined with both, and we'll have to look afterwards how it develops. But some of them can also be used frontline as monotherapy, but they will have to be strongly biomarker-directed, biomarker-guided. New antibodies, linkers, payloads will of course help us to the development of more active compounds. Mechanism of resistance need to be understood to make our job in defining the treatment. And the patient journey through the disease and the management of toxicity, you think you know, we think we know, is slightly different than usually. And we need here to educate and to be educated for each of these single agents. And with this, I thank you for your kind attention.
1: Thank you very much, Solange. Yes, I think this is the segment that we are all waiting for. This is the opportunity for us to ask questions and clarify all the doubts in our mind. Yes, I will first look at a couple of questions coming in from the audience. The first question is, how do you screen for ADC-induced interstitial lung disease? Is it only when they're symptomatic or on a a regular basis? Uh, Screening for ILD, uh, should it be done perhaps um, only when they're symptomatic or at regular intervals we should actually screen for it?
2: So you hear, you raise a very important question because the, uh, the answer is yes. At the time being in this trial, when you use particularly the top one inhibitors, the deryxtecan, all of these agents give rise right to a certain level, a certain, I would say, uh, risk of developing an ILD. Fortunately, in all the trials, the patient had CT scans every six or eight weeks. So this was easy. In the daily practice, we'll have to develop algorithms where we continue to follow this patient on a regular basis and regularly enough. We, if I say that, it's, it's not like platinum-based chemo. This drop can be continued for a long period of time. And ILD can happen virtually anytime. So what you will need to know if continuing the follow-up at a pace and a rhythm which will be documented with more experience, it might be more often than every three months. It might be. And very importantly, you need to have a radiologist who is very experimented in looking at the interstitial diseases, right? Not only measuring the tumor size, but also all the early signal for the beginning of an interstitial disease. So it's difficult because it's not like long-term follow-up of patients. As long as you are under the drug, you need very frequent CT scan because grade one, ILD, needs an intervention. You need to follow up, you need to give steroids, you need to discontinue and to see how it develops. So it's quite important that I would say regular follow-ups are done and experimented radiologists still looking at your follow-up.
0: Yes. Parsi, what do you do in your practice? Uh, Similar to what uh, uh, Solange mentioned, um, grade one ILD, which is a CT scan findings only in the absence of symptoms is usually, of course, detected during restaging uh, studies. Um, But if patients have symptoms... Um, suggest you know, pulmonary symptoms, then I think you need to do more uh, frequent uh, scans there. I think one of the challenges for ILDs, we don't completely understand, I think, what are risk factors for ILD. Uh, it's obviously often a diagnosis of exclusion when you've excluded other uh, things that can lead to changes in, uh, in uh, CT scans. Uh, so there's still many things for, for us, I think, to learn about Diagnosis and 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 management typically, which do of course include steroids, but uh, uh, could include other things in the future as well. Yes, for the ADCs now,
1: there are antibodies going after different targets, and they can have a different payload linked to it. So potentially, you can mix and match. Does it matter? In other words, can we use sequentially two ADCs? going after two different targets, but they carry the same payload. Does it matter? Is it possible to use them sequentially? And alternatively, um, let's say it's the same target, the antibody might be going after TROP2, but can we switch to a different ADC with a different payload when the first one stops eliciting a response?
2: We don't have the answer. We have part of the answer from the breast cancer colleagues because they use the same target, meaning HER2, with different payloads by the sequence of TDM1 and trastuzumab-deruxtecan and and were able to show that the sequence works in inducing response rate of trastuzumab-deruxtecan following TDM1. So at least in breast cancer, changing the payload is a strategy which works. The target remains expressed and not completely repressed at resistance. But I have not a clue, and I don't know if in lung cancer, you cannot maybe face both, you know, resistance to the cytotoxic compound and resistance of the target, meaning repression of the expression of the target on the cell surface. I would guess, unfortunately, that cancer cells are clever enough to induce both at some point, but we have absolutely no data about it. So I think the whole treatment sequencing and strategy will depend on us having the ability of describing this mechanism of resistance, which is extremely tricky. It's re-biopsy, it's dynamic natures of biomarker, so I'm not so sure it's going to be an easy field. Maybe we'll learn by the absurd idea of trying and seeing, try to sequence, see if you observe response, but that's not really precision oncology like we would like to do it.
0: No, I agree. I think understanding acquired resistance mechanisms to ADCs is an uh, uh, I, I think a topic that is worthy of additional attention to try to understand what fraction of it is it, loss of expression of the target or a mutation in the target that prevents binding of the antibody to the antigen, what fraction of it is, it, is due to chemothe- the, uh, resistance to chemotherapy. Um, and I think those pieces will help us dictate or understand whether you can use an ADC against the same target Um, sequentially, perhaps, or with perhaps different payloads. Uh, I think the possibilities exist, but we're still at the infancy of trying to understand it uh, in the first place. All right.
1: Um, There's a question that possibly has been addressed in the lecture. Do we need to test for the target to choose the right ADC? Uh, Several of the ADC that has been described Um, It is actually mechanism agnostic. In other words, uh, we don't really need a biomarker. Are there many or other ADCs down the road that may perhaps require us to test before we use it? Unlike TROP2, that we don't seem to require to test for the expression of TROP2.
2: Well, I remember having said, we still hope at some point that the, because it doesn't make sense there's, there's no biomarker when you have a target but maybe we'll not be able to measure because of the nature of the biomarker to measure it accurately enough to be predictive so existing doesn't mean that it's measurable to be predictive maybe the predictive ability will not be found uh, so but there's those lose hopes that there might be biomarkers even defined for CHOP2 uh, in the future B7H3 and so on and so forth however uh, I would say we have to face reality. Would the, the result be better than docetaxel in second line? Think about datoprotamab. Just an example, it could be any of these, they are all compared to docetaxel. If it's better than docetaxel in second line, to a m- significant extent, a good magnitude, without biomarker, the incentive of really working in finding a biomarker for the industry but also to a certain extent for the community-defining priorities might be lower. So the risk is that we delay a bit this biomarker development is really existing, right? Uh, So I think we need to keep in mind that the logic is to have one and if we can find them, it's because there are more than hundreds now targets which are being addressed by the development of ADC. So I hope that many of these might be measurable, right?
0: I agree. I think if we're going to move ADCs into the area of really of targeted therapies, uh, we do need to have better biomarker definitions. Clearly, the, the, the antigen to which the antibody binds has to be present, and, and, but what is the minimum threshold, I think, is, is not completely understood and may not be even, as, as, as Dr. Peters pointed out in our presentation, may not even be definable by our current assays. We need, may need more sensitive uh, assays. And then there are things that may be more difficult to measure like rate of internalization or trafficking into the lysosomes which are going to be difficult to measure from a your our typical type of clinical biopsy um and we may need to just we may need to develop new strategies to understand the efficacy and I think that's a, a critical need. Yes, that's another question. Which also to some extent
1: has been answered during the talk. Can we combine ADC with chemotherapy or IO? We certainly can. Uh, I'm just wondering, between sequentially using these agents and using them upfront in combination, what what is your feel? Where do you think the, the better approach is? And I'm just very worried about all these trials that combine multiple agent upfront. Because these agents are not available in daily clinical use and the lack of crossover and we will never answer the question whether we should use them all together up front or use them sequentially.
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I I think the the whole sort of combining, there are two sorts uh, uh, behind the, com- because the big, large combinations. The first one is, of course, defining a larger patient population for marketing reasons, right? Because if you can give it frontline, remember that, Basically, we keep in mind the reality here. Huh? Second-line patients represent 50 to 60% of our patients' community. So it means that you can treat way more patients frontline with a very good treatment than you can catch up in second-line, even if you sequence, right? Even if you sequence right, you lose some patients from the opportunity of being in second-line. So I think on one hand, it's a marketing issue. On the other hand, it's also an ethical issue. I think if you have a combination really showing a very high magnitude of synergy between compounds, IO and, uh, and antibody drug conjugates, for example, you should give it frontline because you should expose everyone to this. So I think all this combination, I'm, I'm a bit like you, I'm skeptical putting everything in the same bag to start. But if you show that the magnitude is in line with really a synergy between the agents, you should probably provide it to the vast majority of patients frontline. So everything will be, and we'll discuss it later on in this meeting also for the to trial, everything is about the magnitude. How much do you gain by piling instead of sequencing. But remember that sequencing is always less and less and less patient the more you advance in the lines of treatment. So, which is uh, something to keep in mind.
1: I'm about to round up, uh, but let's uh, have a quick comment. The ADCs against uh, PDL1, is autoimmune underlying autoimmune disorder a contraindication? For
2: well, the antibody drug, based on PDL1. Uh, I tried to list the design. It was autoimmune? Uh, it was not as far as I it was not as far as I remember because you know here we use pdl one as being the target. The immune modulation, if you have a chemo payload, of course, huh, the immune modulation is not uh, really the main target. It's really about anchoring your payload. Of course, for the sting sting pathway payload, this was a contraindication. But I think for the MMaE payload, this was not a contraindication.
1: Yes, thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.